Welcome to today's episode of Pint Size Science, a podcast produced by the outreach organization Science in the News. I'm Hope Marins, a PhD student at Harvard University. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Professor Mark Schmidt, a professor of biology at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Schmidt's research focuses on songbirds, most notably the zebra finch. We sat down today to discuss how these birds learn their songs, the song's roles in bird courtship, and the neurological basis for these behaviors. So yeah, thanks so much for um, talking today and meeting up. Um, maybe we just start really broadly with a little bit about what you research. Yeah, so I work um, at a lab at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I study songbirds. And I've been doing that for, you know, my postdoc, and then I've been at Penn for about 20 years. Um, and I'm trained as a neurophysiologist, so I record from uh, specific areas of the brain that, that form part of this specialized neural circuit uh, in these songbirds. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done and that a lot of other labs have done um, have focused on the zebra finch. So it's um, a bird that's very easy to keep in captivity. Um, the remarkable thing about that bird is that it sings only one song uh, and it's mm -hmm. highly stereotyped. Uh, so that in itself is not what has attracted a lot of people to uh, this um, particularly mo particular model, but it's mostly because this song is actually learned. And so, you know, the young finch goes through a number of different stages that are very similar to what humans go through in terms of learning language. So kind of like a babbling stage, it's called subsong in birds. And then they learn that song and then eventually they learn to produce a fairly accurate copy of their father's song. Uh, and then once they learn that, once they learn to produce that, they will sing that same song for the rest of their lives. They will modify it a little bit based on context, but it's pretty much that same song. Let's take a listen to one of those zebra finch songs. So what are these, like you said, so zebra finch, what do they look like? Um, like if I was to see one outside. Yeah, so they're cute little birds. So they, they're actually uh, from Australia, so you won't see them outside. You'll see them at, at, a, at, at, at a pet store. So they're probably one of the more popular birds. Uh, they're called zebra finches because they have little stripes, uh, black and white feathered stripes right here. Uh, males have an orange pouch. Um, they have bright red beaks. And most of the feathers are kind of grayish with a little bit of white uh, in them. Uh, females, uh, so they're sexually dimorphic, so males have that orange pouch and have the, the black and white uh, zebra stripes. Uh, females don't. So females tend to be kind of gray um, and less colorful. And that's pretty typical for lots of songbirds. And you said, so then the young will learn the song from the father bird? Yes. So dad will sing to the juvenile bird and he'll sing and sing and sing and sing. And, and there's some really cool videos where uh, the juvenile bird kind of just sits there and sometimes would like just fall asleep as dad is like practicing a song and lots of my colleagues, you know, give talks and um, they might have teenagers at home and <laughs> it's very appropriate, you know, as a young, as a parent of a teenager, you keep telling them what's, what they should be doing and they're clearly tuning out and yet they somehow, at least in the birds, they learn the song and in humans, I think 
you know, we tell them, we tell them, we think they're not listening, but yet they somehow do listen to us in the end. So um, there are lots of parallels if you want to uh, find them. Um, and the interesting thing is that it doesn't actually only have to be the dad. It could be any male that's close by. And in some species, not so much the zebra finch, but you can actually present them with song through a speaker. Uh, and the, the, the juvenile will actually learn to copy the song from a speaker um, and then start practicing. What's interesting about the learning phase is that it can be divided in different parts. So there's a first part, we call it the kind of auditory phase um, or the memorization phase where you listen to dad or the speaker and you store that song into memory. Uh, and then, um, and, and that requires you being able to hear the song that, you, that, that, that you've been exposed to. Uh, and then you go through a phase of practicing where you practice and practice and practice the first uh, utterances that come out of your, your mouth or your beak are very ill-shaped. They're kind of like babbling in, in, in infants. They're, they're kind of scratchy little sounds. Um, and essentially the bird hears itself uh, sing or produce these sounds and then it, it compares it to the memory that it, that it encoded from the dad song. And then over practice, what it produces becomes better and better and more closely matched to the memory and once that happens, then something kind of magic in the brain happens. So we call it crystallization, where it's like everything gets locked in. And then for the rest of its life, it pretty much sings that song. And did the birds ever um, like learn the wrong song? Like, do you see kind of variation or that they mess up? Or is it, you know, when they crystallize it, is it always kind of this perfect song? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there's a fair amount of imitation that happens. So the canonical view is is basically that the, the juveniles learn the exact copy of the dad. So there's some interesting experiments where you have, uh, you know, five juveniles in a nest. And so does every juvenile copy the dad exactly the same way? Um, and it turns out that no, that's not the case. So the the firstborn uh, will tend to copy the song quite well, but then the second, third, and fourth will start, you know, improvising a little bit and, and, and throwing in some variations, maybe just to differentiate themselves from the from from their brothers, uh, and again, th again, this is for the zebra finch, right? So um, I should mention that you know there are about nine thousand species of birds on this planet. About half of them are so-called songbirds. So everything I'm telling you now is based on one or two species, uh, but there are about five thousand species of birds that can actually learn their songs, and so there's going to be lots of variation. Uh, some birds will have a very strong innate component and some birds will probably do most of, like will have to learn most of their song. And and zebra finches is probably like a blend. And there's kind of like some innate predisposition for their species own song, but they clearly have to hear their dad uh, to be able to produce the song. And this is just males. So the females are, are they like completely silent or do they have songs just for something else and maybe not as, you know, crystallized? Right. So females, so both males and females produce calls. Uh, these tend to be short vocalizations and they often have distinct meaning. So let's say if you're kind of lost, you might produce a call that's called a contact call to, and then you're, you're conspecific. Your mate, for example, some other bird might, might call back. And so you, you can tell how far they are. Uh, little baby birds will have these begging calls, basically tell mom or dad, like, I'm hungry. Um, and both males and females have these calls. Um, males 
And zebra finches uh, will sing these songs that are more complex, they're longer, uh, and they tend to be involved in kind of mate attraction. Um, and females do not produce these songs. So both males and females produce calls, um, but only males produce these songs. It turns out, now if you look at other species of birds, there are species of songbirds where females actually do sing. And it seems um, from studies that have come out in the last five years that, that singing seems to be the ancestral trait in both males and females. And somehow the ability to sing has become lost in a number of species like the zebra finch or another species that I study in the lab, uh, the brown-headed cowbird. And so you're also looking at kind of the, you know, the neurobiology of, you know, these behaviors, you know, not just the songs themselves. So, you know, how do you actually look at a song, you know, in a brain of a bird and, you know, what kind of, you know, what does it mean to have this crystallized song in terms of, um, in terms of like an actual brain? Right. So what we can do is we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to quantify the behavior. So, um, we have birds sing and in a cage uh, with a female present or not, and then we have microphones um, and we can record the song. And then you can, you know, analyze that. And you can ask if the bird sang the song a hundred times, you know, how different is it from one rendition to the next? And it turns out in the zebra finch, um, he sings a song that has a sequence of song elements known as syllables. So I'll just give an al alphabetical way of describing it. So A, B, C, D. And so he'll sing, his typical song will be A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And then he'll pause a little bit, and then he'll sing A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And the acoustic structure for A and B are exactly the same on a Monday morning or a Wednesday afternoon or three months later on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock in the morning. So it's incredibly precise, very stereotyped. What's cool about the zebra finch is that that song is so precise and so stereotyped that from rendition to rendition, like the acoustic features, like the jitter is maybe like on the order of milliseconds. That's it. It's, 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 it's incredible. And so what's cool about it is you can uh, stick an electrode, a very small metal wire that doesn't hurt at all. You put it uh, in, the, in, in the brain. It's thinner than, than the thin hair. Um, and you attach it to a little amplifier. And so you can record brain activity uh, while the bird is singing. Um, and you can ask, you know, how does this neuron that's kind of firing away, firing mean producing action potentials, how does, the, does that pattern of activation relate to the song? And so the, with a lot of behaviors, there's a lot of variability. If I were to just reach up for a cup, um, I'll in, if I do it 100 times, I'm going to engage different types of muscle groups to reach out for that cup. But when the bird sings, he's activating the same muscles every time. And because the behavior is so stereotyped, I can look at when is that neuron active relative to the song that he's that he's singing. And we found a lot of what well, we the field has has really learned a lot about the types of neural codes that the brain has to produce these types of behaviors. Uh, and it turns out that some of these areas, uh, neurons are incredibly precise in their firing pattern, but they only fire like for five milliseconds at a time, even though the song lasts about a second. Um, but when they fire, they fire at exactly the same time, let's say in the beginning of syllable A, and then another neuron fires at exactly the same time in the middle of syllable B. And so there's there's people have come up with these ideas that there's very 
complex code. It's very abstract uh, of how these areas of the brain encode the timing of the songs. And so that's actually completely unique to birdsong. And uh, people have discovered this so-called so sparse neural code studying uh, these brain areas that are involved in production of song. And now people and mammals and looking at other systems, other behaviors have basically co-opted some of these ideas and are investigating and asking whether other brain systems also use these types of strategies. It's really interesting listening to you talk about how closely sometimes you can map these neural connections to the actual behavior. I wanted to also ask you specifically in your own lab, how you might be going about answering or uh, probing these types of questions. Yeah, so I would say that I, I've actually turned uh, a little side road. Um, right now it's a small bumpy dirt road and I'm hoping that it'll turn into sort of uh, a bigger highway with asphalt. Well, I would be super interested in hearing more about this small bumpy dirt road. Yeah, so the, the new road um, uh, is is related to what I said earlier that there's this dedicated neural circuit called that people coin the the song circuit, um, and if you ask pretty much anybody in the field, they'll say this circuit is necessary for song production and song learning, and in many ways it was discovered as a circuit that innervates the vocal musculature. Um, so I just found it very interesting that you have species like the zebra finch or the cowbird, where the female does not sing. Um, and so if this circuit is really involved in singing, then you would assume that the female should not have that circuit. And for the longest time, when people looked, care looked not so carefully, they noticed that parts of that circuit were present in the female, but they seemed to be smaller. People would say that they were atrophied. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago or less, um, I would just describe females as not even having the song system. So we've done work where we've looked very carefully, and it turns out that these females in species where the females don't sing, they actually have the entire song system. They have the HVC, the RA, the basal ganglia circuit, everything is exactly the same, but it's just not as big. But there are many neurons and they all project the same way. So then the question is, what uh, do they do? That's very surprising to me because I guess usually when I think about something having the same neural circuit, I would assume maybe it has the same function. But I guess these females aren't really using their quote unquote song circuit for singing, may have a different function. Well, right. No, they, they won't. They won't learn it. They won't. They won't sing a song. And so they have a circuit. And clearly it's not for singing in the female. So the female, what she does is, so males will often sing in response to song, right? So you need this circuit, it needs to be linked to the auditory system to be able to produce the song. So what females would do is they produce this behavior called the copulation solicitation display. So this behavior is very similar to uh, what in, in, in mammals and rodents we call lordosis. So when a female is interested in copulating, she will arch her back and present to the male and basically telling the male that, that, that she is ready to copulate. So, so um, songbirds would do the same type of behavior. They'll arch their back and present their cloaca. Um, what's remarkable is that you can actually make that happen in a female bird during the breeding season by just presenting a song. So you present a song, and if the song is of, this, of, the, of, the, of that bird 
a conspecific song, so from the same species, and it's a potent song, the bird will just be hanging out on a perch, you present the song, and she'll just arch her back and hold that position for like five seconds, sometimes 10 seconds. This sounds extremely dramatic. It's incredibly dramatic, incredibly dramatic. And, and it's, you feel bad for the female because it's like she has no choice. Like the song comes and she goes into posture. Um, and so what we've done is we've asked, you know, is it possible that the song system might be involved in this behavior? What we found is that females actually can rank the song. So you can present a female with 10 different songs uh, and she'll go into posture for some songs like 80% of the time. And for some songs, she'll never go into posture. So she is translating the potency of the song and making a decision whether or not she should go into posture. And so what we're thinking about, and it's controversial for sure, uh, that maybe we should not think of the song system as a circuit to control song, but maybe we should zoom out and think about what is song? It's a courtship display. It's a vocal display that male birds produce to attract females, to defend territories. Females also have courtship displays. These are not well studied. Most of the studies are really on focus on the male displays, not the female. And so we're thinking that maybe this circuit is kind of a more generic circuit for courtship display uh, in both males and females. Um, and it turns out that the song system does project to areas in the brain that are involved in postural display in, in female songbirds. Um, and those circuits, those, that, that, those areas are almost exactly the same as those found in mammals that control lordosis. So um, that, that's kind of the direction that we're, that we're moving into. So when it comes to picking mates, do female songbirds have any type of choice in the matter? They have a lot of choice. So when we say that the female songbird has some you know, choice in, in her mate, what, you know, what do we mean by that? Is it in terms of they like certain songs more than others? Or are there kind of you know, certain songs that just you know, all uh, female songbirds swoon over? Uh, you know, what does choice mean for, for a songbird? Yeah, we don't we don't know mostly because we've only tried this with sort of a group of 20 different songs and ideally to extract the features that this bird is really that the female is really listening to. You might have to do this with like a thousand songs Then you can use some sort of fancy sort of art auto encoder system to kind of come up with the features that the females like. Um, so we've only we have too few examples. But what is clear is that the songs that we present to them all females seem to agree, um, and they've agreed on these songs over the last 30 years. So some of these songs were used in Indiana um, in the 80s, and the females preferred song B.O.D. or B.D.Y. and didn't like some of the other songs. Um, so there's, there's agreement across females what potent songs are and what non-potent songs are. I should mention, though, that... Um, this is somewhat artificial because you have a bird, she's all by herself in a cage. She hasn't really been exposed to anything else. And all of a sudden you present a song and she goes into posture. Um, in a real situation, you know, she's going to evaluate song, but she's also going to evaluate visual display from the male, right? So she's going to look at, is it a big male? Is it a strong male? Um, and it turns out the males have to work very hard for the female to actually go into posture. So yes, to get back to your point, females have a lot of choice. They can decide if the male approaches her and they don't like that male, they'll just fly away or they'll call to actually sort of like mask or jam his song. Um, 
And so he has to work very, very hard. He has to sing over and over and over. And then eventually, maybe she'll go into posture and he's able to copulate. It's interesting because it seems like male songbirds would, on one hand, have these crystallized, learned songs, but that they'd also want to be improving their songs in order to perform better with females. Well, that's an interesting point. So if you take, for example, um, the song of a juvenile bird and present it to a female, that turns out to be the most potent song. So the males love the song of a juvenile, uh, females love the song of a juvenile male song. Um, but if you put a juvenile male in an aviary with other males, he gets beaten up, like sometimes even killed uh, because he's sort of strutting around singing his really potent song. And so the other males are actually telling him, no, you can't. And so it seems likely that, that, that young males learn to modify the potency of their song so that they can fit in within the social structure of that, of that network. Um, and so that's something, another area of work that we've sort of are starting to do, uh, which is cool. It's a collaboration with um, a physics lab and an engineering lab where we have this large aviary uh, and it's equipped, it's like 20 foot by eight foot by eight foot, but it's equipped with 10 cameras, computer vision cameras, um, and 24 microphones. And the idea is to basically be able to monitor over the entire breeding season, the identity position uh, of every single bird in the aviary as they pair up, they produce pair bonds, think of it as marriage, uh, and throughout you know a three month period. And we should be able to basically create a sequence of, um, it's called an ethogram, basically a sequence of behavioral events for every single bird over two months and look at all the interactions between all the birds. And we can ask questions like, when you introduce a young bird, like, does he modify his song? Or does the more dominant bird, once he, he establishes dominance within that group, does his song become more potent over like three weeks? And does the subordinate male, does his song become less dominant over time? In other words, do they modify the potency of their song to fit within the social rank of the group? So these are questions we can ask, which I think are quite interesting. It this The idea for the aviary was actually to go back to the question I was asking, uh, mentioning before about these song circuits maybe being involved in courtship behavior. So our plan is to actually study female courtship display and ask whether um, targeting part of the circuit in the female could change you know, her behavior or the behavior of the social network. And we have some pretty good evidence that that, that, that is the case. Yeah, I can imagine that having this large aviary and the ability to track different uh, birds' interactions and social behaviors will be a really powerful way to study that. Before we finish today, if you don't mind, I wanted to ask you a bit about how you got interested in science and, and how you kind of found your, your path specifically to studying songbirds. Yeah, it, it's so it's, it's a, a funny story. It's it's yeah, I used to think it was embarrassing, but I think now I'm sort of old enough to kind of get over that. Um, so I was an undergrad and um, I probably heard about songbirds in an intro course but I probably wasn't really paying attention. So I didn't remember that I was introduced to songbirds. Um, and probably what I was introduced is that canaries, their brain expand and shrink with the season. Um, and at the time I was um, uh, dating this woman, I was a sophomore and her dad was like this very famous biologist, like Nobel laureate. And he was studying 
these um, molecules that are on that that help identify neurons or cells and help sort of guide the connectivity. Uh, these were called neural cell adhesion molecules. So this was like in the mid eighties, um, and so uh, I. I mean, again, the memory is probably distorted because I've retrieved it many times. As you know, you retrieve a memory, it distorts, and then you store it again. Um, but I was in sophomore in college, and I basically had a dream that, you know, these songbirds relearn their song every year. Clearly, I had learned that, but I'd forgotten it. And that this would be a really cool system to study um, and maybe look at how these molecules might be involved. Again, it was a very narrow perspective because it was like, my girlfriend's dad was working on that and I'd heard this. But so Sunday morning, I like go to the library um, first thing <laughs> before breakfast, probably like, you know, nine o'clock for an undergrad. That's very early. Uh, and I just basically go in the basement. This is before Google and stuff like that. And I look through books and I find this book that on this cover was a book on readings and developmental neurobiology by Paul Patterson. And the cover was yellow with a big picture of a canary and a, and, and a sonogram of a song and, and a neuron. And I was like, oh my God, like, I can't believe that people actually study this. Um, and then I kind of forgot about it. And um, I, uh, for my senior year, I was a student at Swarthmore College and the bio majors had to write a paper that encompassed the three major divisions of biology. And I wanted to study these neural cell adhesion molecules, right? But at the time, you couldn't really do like an evolutionary perspective of proteins. Like now everybody does it. It's super easy, right? But at the time you couldn't. So I was like, how, how do I talk about cellular sort of um, like systems level and sort of evolutionary and, and ecology level? That's what we had to do for our, our senior paper. So I said, songbirds is perfect. I can talk about neurons. I can talk about the behavioral ecology. So I ended up writing that paper on that. Um, and I wrote this very famous professor, Fernando Nottebaum at Rockefeller as a senior in college. And he wrote me back and he sent me like 14 reprints and preprints. And I was so impressed. Um, so that was really, and I remember asking my dad, like, is it weird that I wanna choose a career direction based on a dream? And he said, no. And I said, okay. So then that's how I kind of got into that field. and. Um, and it's fun. I mean, I really enjoy it. And some of the questions are just really fascinating. And for students who might be listening to this podcast, high school students or college students who want to get involved with research, but maybe aren't sure where to start, do you have advice for them as well? Absolutely. I think one of the lessons that I had, and I, I tried to do that, and I've, I've had a few Zoom meetings with students that just reached out. Um, you know, I reached out to this professor and he wrote me back like a one page typed letter uh, and he sent me these reprints and it was such an amazing experience for me. I mean, it, 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 it fundamentally changed. Um, I did, ended up not working with him, but I was just like, wow, I'm just an undergrad and this professor like reached out to me. So I'd say, you know, for young students, you know, reach out to people and ask, you know, right now in this sort of like Zoom uh, culture, you know, I, this one student reached out to me and I said, join us for lab meetings. So now she's helping us annotate the birds. And she just joined us on Wednesday at our lab meeting. She lives in Miami. And now she has an experience in my lab, right? And it's, it's these things are possible now. Uh, and so you can sort of see what, what is out there and you can learn about what, I mean, there's so many different areas of science that are so interesting 
And sometimes you might not know about them, but once you learn more about them, you realize how exciting they are. So um, we're all drawn to different directions, but I would say for sure, if you're young and you're, and you're a dreamer, like reach out. And a lot of professors won't, won't answer because they're not interested or maybe it's just not the right time. We get inundated with emails, but every now and then you might get a hit. And you know, if you're prepared and you ask the right questions and you say, I'd be happy to volunteer with something that I can do over the internet, then do it. I think it, it can be very, um, very productive, very fruitful. Well, maybe then there's a, a silver lining to all these Zoom meetings after all. But um, yeah, no, I think it, it's definitely a nice way to, to be able to get involved with research if you're able to find a professor who, who will work uh, with you. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for, for talking today. It was great to talk about your research and to, to hear about how songbirds um, learn their songs and, and how that impacts their interactions with other birds. And thank you so much for talking today. You're very welcome. Absolute pleasure.